We're going to start a new sermon series, sort of our summer series, as it were, this morning. And uh, we've entitled it uh, Torn Veil, and that will hopefully make sense in just a second, what that means. And uh, guys, this is going to be, this is going to be good. It's something that I've been thinking, uh, praying, even getting some input from, from you guys, some of you guys, for a little while now, and uh, I'm very excited. I feel quite confident that this is where the Holy Spirit is leading us as a community, and so I, I hope you're as, as, as excited as I am, because um, this is going to be a really, really fun series, and hopefully quite impactful. This morning uh, is going to be sort of a general introduction, and then at, towards the end of the service, we actually have some cards that I'm going to hand out. And I want to hear from you guys in terms of where we take this series. Um, so, yeah, that should be interesting. There's a whole sort of series or whole uh, list of sort of life categories that you guys can pick from. And I'm going to ask you to pick your top five. And that will really shape where we go with this, this general theme that we're going to begin today. Does that sound good? All right. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for a church family. Thank you that we have the, the incredible privilege to come together um, in a way where we are completely uninhibited, hopefully, um, where we're free, and, and where we can feel safe, Lord, to be ourselves, to ask our questions, to process at our own speed. And Holy Spirit, we invite you here. Won't you come and guide the rest of our time together? I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive from you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Torn Veil, part one. Here we go. Guys, we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 27. We're going to look at, not, not too much, hopefully, but we're going to look at several scriptures this morning. Um, so if you brought a Bible, this is definitely one of those mornings where you might, you might enjoy sort of tracking along. Um, but we will have it up on the screen as always. So, just a little context before we jump right into it. This is the very end of our first gospel in the New Testament, the gospel according to Matthew. And Jesus has enjoyed the Last Supper with his disciples. He has already predicted uh, three times his death and resurrection in some detail. And he is now on his way to the hill where he is about to be crucified on a Roman cross. Um, the build up to the actual crucifixion is gross. It is um, unfathomable. And it's, it's really something that I don't think any of us 
have any sort of uh, frame of reference for in our, our day and age, unless perhaps you saw Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, that's probably as, as good as we're gonna, going to get in terms of understanding, um, even in part, what Jesus actually went through um, in the buildup to his actual crucifixion on the Roman cross. But he's now being paraded through the streets of Jerusalem and he can no longer even bear his own cross because of the beatings, the flogging, the torture that he's already underwent. And so the Romans, they grab a, a random guy out of the crowd, a guy that happens to be named Simon, um, and they force him to carry Jesus' cross. But they finally get to the point, the hill where Jesus is to be crucified, and this is where we now pick up in Matthew Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land. So that would have been around noon. There was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, translation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is uh, directly quoting out of Psalm 22, which I recommend going back to read sometime, and read it in parallel to uh, the beginning part of Matthew 27. It is astounding uh, the number of prophetic details that Jesus is fulfilling in accordance to Psalm 22 as he is led to his crucifixion. But he's quoting Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's in the process of bearing all of the sins of the world, past, present, and future. It is a cosmic event. Jesus is taking our sins upon himself, and the weight of that sin is literally crushing his soul. The overwhelming feeling of being separated from his heavenly, his eternal heavenly father. This is what's taking place now in this moment. Verse 47 And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah, one of the prominent Old Testament prophets. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Verse 49, but the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He died. Next slide, please. And behold, the curtain of the temple, or the veil of the temple, was torn in two. From top to bottom, the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs in the area were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city, Jerusalem, and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. This is the crucifixion of Jesus. Arguably, the pinnacle moment of Jesus' crucifixion is when he has just given up his spirit and in a moment... The curtain, the veil, 
that once separated people, normal people, fallible, sinful, broken humans from holy God. That curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. The barrier, the partition that once separated us from our maker was now torn down. This is a powerful picture of what was happening spiritually when Jesus died as a atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. That partition was removed. The veil was torn. What we're going to be talking about this morning in the next several weeks What are the implications of this tearing of the veil? What does this cosmic event in history, this unfathomable thing that Jesus did on the cross, I mean, people, dead people, just like sprung back to life in the moment. After Jesus himself was resurrected, there were sightings of these dead saints who had come back to life. Power was unleashed in that moment. So much so that dead things just came back to life. And that power, that same power that was at work when Jesus came back from the dead, the power that was unleashed when Jesus gave his own life, that sacrifice that he made with his own blood on that cross is still at work in the world today. What are the implications for our lives? Like, what does this mean for my marriage? How might this be applied, appropriated for like my real life challenges and struggles and issues and dreams and hopes and fears and life? Have you ever thought about it? Now, to be fair, um, If you're not a Christian, and I'm not assuming that we all are, we would never do that. Even in a room this size, that would be be, uh, unfair. I would at least ask you, as you're exploring faith, as you're exploring uh, Christianity and, and the claims that Jesus has made about himself and what the scriptures tell us, I want you to come to grips with the fact that following Jesus is so much more than just thinking about something that happened that perhaps has like philosophical ramifications. Uh, it's perhaps just interesting to ponder in terms of history and, and spiritual things. No, no. To follow Jesus is to follow him through the veil. It's, it's to cross over. It's, as Jesus himself put it, it's, it's to undergo a rebirth. It's to become someone else, to be transformed from the inside out. If you want to follow Jesus, this, this, is, this is what he's offering. This is what he's calling you to participate in. And this is what we're going to talk about this morning and the next few weeks to come.
Paul, the apostle, who we hear from quite a bit, he puts it this way. Let's go to the next slide, please. This is Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. He said, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Of course, baptism um, is this being submerged, submersed underwater. This is a beautiful, powerful, symbolic picture of one being buried, as it were, with Jesus. And it says, when we've been baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death. Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, but the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life. Jesus calls people to follow him. Jesus did call people to follow him. He had followers. Jesus, by his spirit, continues to call people to follow him to this day. Where are we going exactly? It's like my kids. Sometimes I'm like, it doesn't matter. Just get in the car. Just put your shoes on, get in the car. You'll see when we get there. Jesus tells us explicitly where he's calling us to. He's calling us to the cross. He's calling us to follow him unto death so that we can experience a newness of life that he himself uh, demonstrated that he offers anyone who would lose their life, their old life, their old agenda, and follow him. Now, let me, I have to emphasize this. Um, I had a, I'll, I'll put it this way. I had a conversation with a, uh, a friend of mine, um, friend, acquaintance-ish, uh, a few days ago. And uh, really nice, really nice conversation. He asked me how things were going. And I was like, life is, life is exciting at the moment. A little intense. Um, but yeah, you know, marriage is great. Uh, kids are great slash insane. Uh, uh, we just moved into a new house. Uh, crazy story, but we, we just bought our first home, which is really, really exciting. So yeah, life is just, life is full on at the moment. And uh, he proceeded to then kind of uh, sort of elaborate to me about just how intense all of those things were. And he, he was like, oh, yes, I know exactly what you mean. Oh, my goodness. Let me tell you, buying a house, kids, marriage, oh, yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, I know for a fact you've never been married. I don't think you have any kids. And don't you still live at home? (laughs) You ever have one of those conversations? And I'm thinking, um, I didn't say it out loud, but like you have no idea what I'm talking about. You have no idea what you're talking about. The point is, guys, when it comes to following Jesus, and I'm guessing that probably most of us in this room, this is not like, wow, like I've never, ever, ever come across Romans 6. I've never heard of such a thing. Now, you probably have. But here's the problem. Many of us, along the way, in our journey, as it were, following Jesus, we can hear this. And we can hear it preached, and we can listen to podcasts on it, and we can begin to think that because we've heard about it like a hundred times, 
that we're actually like experiencing it. We're walking in it. And I don't want to make you like feel bad about your, your spiritual state, um, but I would love to, to challenge you to just be honest with yourself. What we're not talking about is talking about a spiritual experience. We're not talking about merely talking about uh, a philosophy to be pondered. What Jesus is calling us to is to step through the veil, to die with him, that we might experience newness of life. Experience. It's not a call to ponder. It's a call to participate in the death and new life of Jesus Christ. This is what we're talking about. Um, And I would say one last thing about that. Uh, Guys, this is um, the key, if you will, to understanding everything else there is to understand and experience in terms of, of the way of Jesus. It's, it's a fairly thick book. Um, Paul, in particular, one of the, the primary authors of the New Testament, um, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's super wordy. He's great. Gosh, I mean, you can just spend a lifetime digging into uh, Paul, as it were. But, uh, guys, the, the book is thick. Without a starting point, without like an anchor, without a key to unlock it, um, you can just sort of end up skirting around the periphery. You can kind of toy around with religious things, but until you come to the cross, until you respond to the call to participate in the death and new life of Jesus, you're only ever just dabbling in religion. And guys, that's super, super boring. It just really is. Unless you're just really into that, in which case, I just, I don't know. I'll pray for you. <laughs> I, uh, during worship, I put my hand in my pocket, and uh, I, re- I have like 10 keys in my pocket right now, and they all look identical. Uh, I lent my key to this building to someone, and uh, it sort of got misplaced, and anyways, long story short, ended up in a pile of like identical looking keys, and I had this little prophetic moment during worship. I'm like, yeah, like that's, that's a great little illustration. Like so many times um, as just normal people trying to read the Bible, understand Jesus, we, we can be like fishing for like in a pocket full of keys that all look the same thing. We're like, look, I just, I just need to know which one gets me in the building. Okay, from there, like we can just, we can take our time exploring everything else. Guys, the cross is the key to everything else. What Jesus accomplished for humanity on the cross puts everything else in right place. It makes everything else work. It makes the journey more than just an idea. It opens the door to experiencing a reality that Jesus himself has made possible. Shall we continue on? Yeah? All right. First Corinthians chapter 2. This one's not on the screen. 
verse 2. Paul writes, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's a bold statement. I determined to know nothing else but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. That's what we're talking about. We're not just talking about talking about something. We're talking about experiencing a reality that Jesus is calling us into. How does this work? What does this look like in practice? Please don't go to the next slide. Um, we'll get to that. I want to I use the chalkboard. You guys okay with that? We all like the chalkboard. What does the theology of the cross look like? Oops, sorry. Okay. This is us. This is where we all start. We'll call this the kingdom of me. Okay, we all have little me kingdoms. Um, When we're about this big, we're determined to center the universe around the kingdom of me. Um, We hopefully, eventually, begin to realize that that just doesn't work out well for anyone. But this is where we we generally all begin. Uh, We grow up, when we're little kids, we're utterly self-centered. Eventually we figure a few things out, but in terms of our nature, we all start here. And we kind of are just trying to get, um, as we, we grow up, as we mature a little bit, as we begin to sort of realize the way the world works, we realize that we're going to have to give a little something in return. There is a bit of an investment required if we want to get anything. So let's just be fair and say there's at least a few of these sort of outward-oriented motivations uh, that are also at work in the kingdom of me. But this is where we start. We tend to view life in the world in terms of like a, a bartering economy. You give a little, you get a little. But hopefully you're going to come out on top. Because we all want to be happy, and that's just, that's just how people generally are. Um, this does not typically work out well for anyone. Eventually, this becomes exhausting. Or you get really, really good at it, but you realize that in order for you to get some, someone else is going to have to go without. It's very, very difficult to do this without someone getting burnt out. This requires a degree of self-centeredness that really, in the end, ends up uh, eroding relationships and just exhausting individuals. So there needs to be a way out of the kingdom of me. And this is where the cross comes in. Jesus, he comes and says, I want to set you free. I want to take this burden from you. I want to give you a new identity. I want to teach you how to live in such a way that you're not bound to simply getting your needs met, but rather you are full. You are fulfilled and overflowing with good things to share. And so Jesus says, come, follow me. Where are we going, Jesus? Well, we're going to go to the cross. We're going to die. Jesus 
said in uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. This one's on the slide, if we can go there. And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. This is actually a lifestyle we're talking about. And follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This is called um, grace-filled self-denial. I'm not talking about denial, like denying reality, but denying self. Denying self and dying with Jesus. So Jesus calls us to walk all the way up to the cross and die with him. Now, Jesus is the one that actually died a physical death. Um, he did that on behalf of sinful humanity. So when we die, although there is a very real component to our self-dying, our self-denial, that ultimate death was done on our behalf by Jesus. So our death really is a vicarious experience in Jesus Christ. And yet we're called to die nonetheless. Um, what happens next is that we don't stay here. We're called to rise with Jesus in newness of life. You know, a lot of us do make the mistake of just sort of camping out right here. Um, this is called a half repentance. When, when you realize this is not working out well, I don't know if you've ever experienced this where like the kingdom of me is crumbling and you're like, look, I'm just, I, I, need, I need to do something about my life. This is rough. Um, and so you, you think, well, I just need to die to self because self is not working out for me. And you go here and you just sort of, you, you kind of stay buried in the grave. You've turned away from sin, but Jesus says, no, 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 don't stay in the grave. It would be like getting baptized and just like the vicar's holding you under, like indefinitely, like new definition to self-denial. Jesus rises again to new life, and he calls us to be members of the kingdom of God, his kingdom, uh, his family. And this is a kingdom that's marked, that's defined by love. God is love. God is always giving God is eternally generous. God never runs out. He's always got more than enough. God is full of grace, mercy. His promises are always yes and amen. He doesn't grow tired. He doesn't get bored. He doesn't become impatient. God is the very essence of love. And Jesus said that when we would follow him, he would teach us more than that, he would transform us so that we too, as children of God, could experience this, what Jesus described as a river of living water that just keeps flowing out, keeps like we have this internal well that just springs up, a well of life. This is called life in the spirit. I don't know if you can read that.
losing my notes. Galatians 2.20. Again, Paul writing, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Of course, he is alive. He's writing this. But it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He also says elsewhere that he does this that he might no longer live for myself, but for him who for my sake died and rose again. When we follow Jesus to the cross, die to self and experience newness of life by the spirit of Christ, we find that something fundamental begins to take place on the inside of us to where our deepest affections, our greatest desires start to become more and more outward oriented. We learn how to love. We begin to learn how to love like our Father, like God. We serve people. We give and we give, and we give with no strings attached, no expectations in return, simply out of who we are. What else are we gonna do with all this love? I'm gonna explode with love. Paul says that, uh, that he is compelled by the love of Christ. It's like he's gotta do something with it. He's gotta share it. And this is what we experience as members of the kingdom of God. Guys, this is how the world is changed. This is how individuals are set free from themselves and begin to change, actually change the world around them. This is, I I don't know about you, but this is awesome. Like, this is what I want to experience more of. Now, something tends to happen here that for some reason ends up putting us back here. I call this the perils of religion. This is when we've repented far enough to turn away from our sin. Uh, Perhaps we've, like, I don't know, screwed up. Perhaps we've done something really dumb um, slash sinful, and it just kind of wrecked our lives. It's like broken a relationship. It's put us in debt. And we're like, this just, this is miserable. Okay, I I need to turn from this. And so we turn and we get here, but what's really happening at this point it's, it's not so much what the scriptures would refer to as a quote-unquote godly sorrow. This like deep realization that I've not only messed up my own life, but, but I've offended my, my creator. I've, I've, I've wasted the life that my, my God has given to me. Or at least I'm 
I'm busy wasting it. And there's this something beyond like, whoops, I really messed up. Now my life is, is kind of miserable and naturally you're going to feel bad about that. Who wouldn't? It's like getting a speeding ticket. Like, I feel deep, deep sorrow. Worldly sorrow, as, as the scriptures would put it. What, what do I feel sorry? Do I feel sorry for speeding? No. <laughs> I will do it again if I know I'm not going to get caught. <laughs> but I feel really bad about the fine I got to pay because that's just miserable. Okay. That will create this pattern of behavior. I'll stop speeding just until I forget the effects of that fine. And I'm, I just got a speeding ticket. One of those stupid cameras got me. I wasn't even going that fast. In a few months, I'll probably forget about it. And then we'll see what kind of actual sorrow was taking place here. But eventually, that the sting of those uh, consequences may wear off and we forget. And so the perils of religion is that we don't really, we're not really sorry for our sin, we're just really bummed out about the repercussions. And so we do this. In fact, we sort of respawn back over here. We're still living in the kingdom of me. We've just perhaps made some slight moral adjustments to our lifestyle. That's not the transformation that Jesus is inviting us to participate in. Okay, that's religion. That's just perpetuating the cycle. That's just respawning back over in the kingdom of me, just slightly different. Guys, that's, that's super boring also. 1 Timothy 6.5, let me read this to you. Uh, Paul's writing to one of his, uh, one of the young men that he's mentoring, discipling, and he writes to Timothy and he says, um, there will come a time when there are those who profess to be followers of Jesus, but they're conceited, they're quarrelsome people, they're divisive, and they imagine that godliness is a, some kind of means of gain. So it's sort of a way of like, well, I'll kind of make some adjustments to my morality if it'll mean me getting less speeding tickets. Like, I, I can get with that. I could see the benefits of that sort of godliness. But that's not the transformation that Jesus is calling us to. Paul, again, he writes in another letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 5, he says that these sort of individuals have the appearance of godliness, but they, in essence, deny the power of Jesus. You can sort of modify your behavior enough to look like you're, you're doing something that might resemble what we call repentance, but you're really just sort of modi modifying your behavior a bit. The kingdom of me is still alive and well. So we must beware the perils of religion because it's a massive waste of time. And in fact, one of two things might happen if you find yourself caught up in this, this cycle. One, either you'll get really good at it and you'll find like, dude, I'm like, I am epic at religion. Like, I, church attendance, giving, serving, like, I got this church stuff waxed. And you can, feel, you can end up feeling uh, quite good about yourself, um, a bit self-righteous, as it were. And, God, guys, the, the world does not need any more of that at all, right? Just 
please agree with me. We really, really don't. Portland doesn't need that. Or, or you might attempt to do this. You might attempt to kind of modify some of your behavior and realize like your willpower is just like next to nil and you're really not good at this whole like being a good boy or girl, good girl business. In which case you'll just say, forget it all. Like I'm just going to rebel and gosh, I might be slowly destroying my life, but heck, I'm going to have fun on the way down. However you look at it, you're going to end up back reigning in the kingdom of me, which eventually will do this. And that's why Jesus came to rescue us. So, this is a theology of the cross. This is what we call the gospel. This is the message of God's rescuing love in Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus gave up his life so that we might participate in his death and ultimately walk in newness of life in the kingdom of God where we're no longer reigning as king but King Jesus, the good, faithful, able king is now reigning in our life and in our hearts we begin to learn how and are empowered to love the way our Heavenly Father does. This is where we find freedom. This is the life that Jesus has died to give us. What are the implications of that? Um, where are those cards? Okay, just get ready to hand those out. In just a second, guys, I'm going to give out these cards that I just I mentioned a minute ago. And there's a whole list um, of life categories. How does this impact my degree? How does this impact the, the crushing debt that I wake up to every morning? How does this impact the marriage that I'm fighting tooth and nail to keep alive? How does this impact my hopes? my dreams that I have for, for, for the rest of my life? How does this impact my fears? How does this impact my shame? The implications affect our past, our present, our future. They redeem our past, they bring meaning to our present, and they provide hope for the future. The implications of the cross are personal, cosmic, and communal. Personally, I receive a new identity when I follow Jesus to the cross. Cosmic, this isn't just like this little private experience between you and, and Big J. This is, this is something that affects the entire universe. Creation itself felt the effects of Jesus' victory on the cross. I mean, the earth shook. The sun went dark. And it's communal. It's meant for our city. It's meant for our, our communities. It's meant for, for the, the nations. And finally, the implications of the cross are physical, emotional, and intellectual. 
Jesus' death affects my body. It affects what I do with my body. It affects what I do with my genitalia. It affects how I feel. It provides a psychology that's healthy, that's whole, that's integrated, that informs how I think about and cope with stress and anxiety and depression. And it's, it's intellectual. There is a philosophy, a worldview embedded in the cross that informs the way I, I go through life. It tells me where I came from. It tells me what my greatest problem in life is. It tells me what the solution is. And it tells me what I'm meant to do with my life and where I'm meant to spend eternity thereafter. This is a philosophy of the cross. The implications are vast and profound. 